Uh, one thing I did note, we need to move tables after this, so let's not forget that. So we gotta set up the uh, voting precinct. So, um, uh, so, all right, well, we are gonna be uh, tonight, let's see here. Tonight we are gonna be, in, gonna be in the book of Judges, so we're gonna be in chapter three, looking at verses uh, 12 through 30. So verse 12 to just shy of the end of the chapter. You can find our passage on page 202 in the Pew Bible. I will be uh, bring up the uh, scripture on the screen and reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and uh, the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gira, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword uh, with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sira. Uh, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, now we've done it. We've gotten to the darker part of the Bible that gets into literal blood and guts. 
But aside from the fascinating reading, we aren't really sure what to do with the story of Ehud. Is his conduct good or bad? Should it be replicated? Certainly it's good that he delivered Israel from servitude, but was he right in the way that he went about it? You will find commentators throughout the centuries divided on the issue. Some will simply ignore this passage and and move on, while others will try to sanitize it and allegorize it and clean it up a bit, make it fit for church. But this is what makes the book of Judges so great. It's messy and ugly, just like a world full of sin in which we live. So tonight we're going to consider Ehud's story. As the second major judge, remember there are six major judges and six minor judges. We'll pick up with Shamgar. He comes at the very end of the chapter um, next week. We'll talk about him. He only gets one verse. He's a minor judge. Uh, but he does amazing things. Uh, now, uh, and as we, as we look at Ehud's story, we're going to see how God deals with his people's sin, how God brings about a both humorous and humiliating end to his enemies, And third, how God achieves victorious rest for his people. So first, God deals with the sin of his people in verses 12 through 14. And and what, on the face of it, we can call a surprising divine response, although uh, we must admit in the book of Judges it may not be all that surprising because we've been well prepared for it uh, after reading the first two introductions to the book of Judges. But the people of Israel, true to form, did what was evil in God's sight. Note the author makes it very clear, saying it twice, exactly why what was happening to Israel was happening. Because they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And we can safely assume that this means that they were once again forgetting God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. So so what does God do about it? Does he send a prophet? Does he send a plague? No, instead he strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab. Even his name is ugly, Eglon. Like you wouldn't want to name your kid Eglon. It's like I'm not going to do that to him. All right. Moab uh, decided to make a coalition of forces uh, to take over the Israelites. So they join up with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. I'm going to bring up a little map here. And so you can see there uh, to the right, you have Ammon right there next to the, uh, Gad. Uh, and just south of Reuben, you have Moab. And then the Amalekites are, don't really have a real clear spot, but they're usually in the kind of the, they kind of just give Judah and Simeon a bunch of problems in the southern region. And the Amalekites are uh, uh, argued by uh, several commentators to be uh, Israel's uh, bitterest enemy. And now the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, uh, uh, well, so, sorry, the Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, specifically, they are descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, who, though he, the scriptures tell us, was a righteous man, yet fell into incestuous sin uh, with his daughters and produced these two peoples that became the enemies of God's chosen nation. At any rate, uh, these three uh, joined together, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites, and, uh, and took possession of the ruins of the city of Jericho, which is called the City of Palms, and which was still, although it was in ruins, was still a strategic military center. And essentially, they apparently were rebuilding. Uh, and 
uh, here is, uh, and here is, uh, you know, the first city that Israel took and has now fallen into enemy hands. And we're told that Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, I recall that in the time of Othniel, that Israel had served or been oppressed for eight years, but now they are, they are oppressed for 18 years. So there's an intensification of discipline, which should also lead us to understand the intensifying wickedness of Israel and what they were doing in their abandonment of Yahweh. What may strike people, though, in this passage is, is why God would be strengthening Israel's enemies against them. Uh, how can God do such a thing? Uh, but it was God, we are reminded, who hardened Pharaoh's heart for his own purposes. Uh, and, and when we studied that years ago, uh, for God to harden Pharaoh's heart was simply really for God to say to Pharaoh, do as you please. Follow your heart, Pharaoh. Be who you are, as we like to say today. Right? Uh, now, uh, while this, that now in that context, it was not punishment, but it was the means by which God was hardening Pharaoh to bring about a great and glorious victory. But it will also later be Yahweh who raises up the Assyrians and the Babylonians, calling them his instruments to exile Israel for their abandonment of God and their commitment to idolatry and sin. And so we must, um, and, and so we have to, as we think about this, we must beware of, of limiting God in our minds. Our God is indeed our maker and our redeemer. His love for his people is boundless. It, it is embodied in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, giving us forgiveness and eternal life. But And so as we celebrate that, we must guard against some, uh, some and even uh, many in, in, in Christian churches who have essentially interpreted the love of God to mean that he would never bring hardship into their lives, that God would never bring something painful into their lives in order to get their attention because they had given themselves as something that was sinful and idolatrous. Now, whenever I say that, I'm always careful to counsel uh, uh, either from the pulpit or council church members, not to assume that every time something bad happens, uh, like your car won't start or you, you stub your toe, that somehow God's secretly mad at you because you, you know, didn't tithe enough or you forgot or to do, uh, you forgot this or that or the other thing and whatever secret sin that you're not even aware of that God's somehow mad at you about. That's not what this is. Israel is not guilty of minor insignificant or unknown sins they have abandoned God they have violated the most fundamental of commands as the people of God they have not made it past commandments one and two even on the even on the, even on the surface level they have turned literally you know we talk about idolatry now today we go like well we don't mean bowing to statues well there we mean bowing to statues and engaging in immoral uh, immoral religious cultic practices. And so we need to remember, though, that God's love does not limit his justice or his willingness to discipline his children uh, when they err grievously and at times uh, to, to discipline us in painful ways to get our attention. And so let it be a reminder 
even, even a warning to any of God's children who are considering or in the midst of playing around with sin as if it were a small thing or an insignificant thing. Our God is love indeed. And he loves his people zealously and joyfully and jealously, even to the point where he will discipline his people to bring them back to him. And so we must beware of limiting God, but also as we move into the passage, we see a humorous and humiliating end for the enemy and the enemy of God and the enemy of his people. And this comes by deliverance, which is won by a left-handed Savior. Uh, the, the people cry out uh, to Yahweh, and in his kindness he responds by raising up Ehud. And for all uh, that Ehud does and, and, and the questions his tactics raise, we must understand Ehud in light of what the author calls him, a deliverer. He is a deliverer. Whatever else we may think of him, he is that at the very least. He's also a Benjaminite that we're told, as we're told. And that would make sense because uh, if, we look at, uh, if we look at the map, um, and I'll bring up a closer zoomed in map there. Uh, um, so, uh, so right there uh, on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on the eastern side of Benjamin, that's where the action is. That's where Moab came in. They're the ones seeing the most intense uh, uh, oppression from Moab. So it is fitting that the judge would come from the tribe of Benjamin. And, uh, and we're told that he is a left-handed man. And it's funny, our conversations about being left-handed are usually about left-handed people that we know complaining about how hard it is to be a left-handed person in a right-handed society. And hey, you have to get stuff and you write different and you have to do all these different things. Uh, that's not what being left-handed necessarily meant in that day. Uh, left-handed, literally actually in the Hebrew, they didn't have a word for left-handed. It's called hindered in your right hand is how you say left-handed in Hebrew. Okay? And so... Um, and there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Um, some argue it means that Ehud was disabled in his right arm, which is possible. Um, others argue that, like, uh, there actually, uh, um, it's believed that uh, there were many Benjaminite warriors were actually ambidextrous. And they were taught to fight with both hands, which made them very capable warriors and very uh, powerful warriors. Uh, but in the ancient world, uh, being left-handed usually wasn't a compliment. It's usually indicated metaphorically that a person was cunning with a penchant for deception. And Ehud was certainly a cunning man with a plan. Uh, he, uh, he was to lead a group that was to take to King Eglin uh, the annual tribute, likely an agricultural offering or of tribute to the king. And that's why you need a bunch of people to carry it because it's a lot of, a lot of food. And uh, having access uh, to the king, uh, to uh, king, it reminds me of kind of the spy movies uh, where they're like, oh, let's get an invite to the ball, you know, and so we'll sneak in, you know, kind of like, that's this kind of, you know, coer you know, undercover that he's doing. And so uh, and so he in preparation, we see him in his workshop making a dagger roughly 14 to 18 inches in length, kind of the length of your forearm there. And it didn't have the normal cross piece. Uh, it was also um, double-edged. Uh, most swords of that day were single-edged because you just slashed, but this was a double-edged, and it also didn't have the cross piece, and so this shows you it's an assassin's weapon. It's a stabbing weapon, and they, which is not a standard war weapon in that time. And so Ehud uh, presented himself for his tribute before the king to establish himself in the court. The king knows who he is, and 
Uh, and once they completed their tribute, they actually all leave, apparently, including Ehud. They go, they go back, they start heading back, and then they get to a certain point around Gilgal. And uh, once the tribute team has essentially made it safely back across Ehud, uh, right where, the, where apparently some um, uh, Moabite idols have been set up, he turns back and heads back to go carry out his plan. He returns to the court, uh, claiming to have a message for the king, which we have to admit is not necessarily a lie, right? He just has a message the king doesn't necessarily know that he doesn't want to receive. Uh, now, it was believed in that time that the gods would often warn of political threats and intrigue, and Eglin was probably a very uh, superstitious and paranoid man worried about assassination plots, and, and so uh, perhaps uh, this was information about that, or maybe this was information about re you know, rebellious in uh, Israelites uh, or uh, you know, a threat from his own court, perhaps. At any rate, Eglin throws caution to the wind and gives Ehud a private audience in his chamber, which apparently was also the place where he would go to relieve himself. And we have to imagine, I mean, we have to remember that, you know, indoor plumbing was not a thing. And so, and so to have any type of uh, uh, area where you would go relieve yourself, to go do your business, uh, would be, you know, uh, would be understandably uh, complex. And I even have a, a design of what it's thought to look like up here. Don't worry, there's no people in this one. All right, so, all right, so. <laughs> Just being clear, like what's, what's about to come up here. So, um, so the idea there, and that may be difficult to see, but essentially there's, there's an upper level uh, that you go up the steps, and then there's basically a toilet area that deposits down into a lower area, which basically a janitor under the stairs there could go in and get the, get the basin or pot or whatever and go and dump it out. So, I mean, you know, you imagine this is not in your average home, right? This is a royal fancy thing to have, and so... Uh, what's thought here is when Ehud went to made his, make his escape, some, some argue that he basically removed the toilet, dropped down the hole, and walked out the janitor's closet. <laughs> so walked out the janitor's entrance, which is quite possible. Um, and so, uh, so, but he gets into, um, uh, but before we get into the actual stories, the, 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 any more details about exactly what happened, we need to consider how Eglin is portrayed in this story. His, uh, his name in Hebrew, Eglin, means little calf. And, uh, and, and what is the key descriptor that we're given about Eglin, this little calf? He was very fat. Now, in the ancient Near East, being overweight was a sign of wealth, right? Uh, I mean, that's in the ancient world where lots of people starve. If someone's overweight, they're like, where's the food? You know, you apparently have lots of food. You have lots of money. You have lots of wealth. Um, but uh, here, the king of Moab is actually portrayed as a little fat calf, ready for slaughter, all right? And get slaughtered he does indeed. And so I want you to notice how in this, in this passage, the author, he continues to slow the story down to the point where he's describing even the very arm movements of Ehud. He's slowing it, slowing it down. And the king arose from his seat, we're told, to receive this secret message from God. And Ehud takes that moment and reaches over and grabs and, grab, and grabs the blade, or actually grabs the blade off of this side, and, uh, and stabs him through the stomach. And he leaves it in there. And we're told that the, the wound was so sudden and deep that it caused Eglin to evacuate his bowels, and he died right there. Um, now, 
it is one thing to assassinate a king. It's another thing to live to tell the tale. Uh, and so Ehud locked the doors, and given the smell that had just arisen from Ehud uh, uh, in his otherwise scatological demise, his attendants assumed uh, that he must be going to the bathroom. And so, they, and so they wait until they realize that even the king cannot take that long. And, and when he, they go to open the doors, there they find their Lord dead on the floor. The story is dark, but it is also funny, and it would have made any Israelite smile and chuckle when they heard it. The, the hearing about the cunning Israelite bringing a deserved divine retribution to an evil king. It is right to slaughter the fattened calf and humiliate the enemies of Israel. And this, this brings up the, the, the very curious deliverance of God here. It is striking as we think back to Othniel, the model judge, and the very basic and plain uh, style of his writing. It was only four verses that described his story to lay out the basic framework of what a judge does. And, and, and we see uh, that he follows the basic framework of Othniel's story with a few key differences. Um, the people sin and they're punished by God. Uh, they cry out to the Lord. He raises up a deliverer. And the deliverer brings about a great victory and ultimately brings rest to the land. But um, uh, but there is no description in here uh, in Eglon's assassination or in the battle that follows, uh, as in Othniel's story, of the spirit of Yahweh filling the judge, uh, resting upon him in order to accomplish the great, very, the great military victory. Uh, but this, this doesn't highlight necessarily that we should have a negative opinion of Ehud and his tactics, but rather that God's deliverances don't come the same way every time. There are times when God will empower a judge to do a grand, marvelous thing in a great military conquest or a singular event by himself with the jawbone of a donkey like Samson. He will also use a left-handed man of cunning, just as he will later, as we're getting to the next chapter, use a woman with a bowl of milk curds and a tent stake to deliver the people of Israel. And if you want to, and if you if you want to hear a song written about a woman driving a tent stake through a man's head, just stay tuned. It's coming. All right. Further, this highlights that no matter how powerful our enemy may seem, the enemies of God's people may seem, God is greater still. Eglin, who is in absolute power for 18 years at the head of a coalition of three peoples who were the enemies of God's people, died on his own toilet portrayed forever as the little fat calf who got slaughtered. That was this great and powerful king who oppressed the people of God for so many years. And so will be the end of all those who oppose the people of God. God's works, uh, God works, it, it, he, he works his will in order to deliver his people in ways that we don't often expect. Some ways are miraculous some ways are very, very human. And while this doesn't necessarily affirm all of Ehud's actions, it does leave a lot of room for debate over the morality of military combat, the use of deception in military, uh, um, uh, uh, military um, battles. Um, but what we must be clear on, again, is that Ehud is a deliverer who has cut the head off the snake, the one who is oppressing God's people, and he is about to finish the job. There's an echo here of Ehud 
in the life of Christ even, in the Gospels, particularly with respect to how unexpected the deliverance that Christ brings is. How unusual the deliverance he brings is. He's not what the Pharisees thought the deliverer would be. He's not what the disciples thought the deliverer would be. He's not what John the Baptist, the herald of the Christ, thought the Messiah would be. And yet he is the deliverer. The Jews saw him as a problem, as one to be dismissed. But the apostles preached that it was this Jesus, the one that you that, you, that they had crucified, who has now become Lord in Christ in his resurrection glory. And he will come again and bring the fullness of the victory that he won first for us in his own triumph over the grave. And this brings us to this ble- that blessed victory that God's deliverer brings in verses 26 through 30. And in doing so, we need to uh, uh, take notice in the story of the helplessness of idols. I couldn't help but notice uh, that in two places we hear about idols. Um, earlier in the story, before the assassination of Ehud, uh, um, or the assassination of Eglon, uh, Ehud went as far as the idols of Gilgal. Remember, that means he left the city, went over to Gilgal, which we're still kind of uncertain exactly where that is. Um, he goes to Gilgal, and then he and then says he turned back at the idols at Gilgal, and then went to go take out to take out Eglon. Uh, and then we're told in verse twenty-six that Ehud escaped and passed beyond the idols, heading northwest into the territory of Ephraim. And I have a map of that I'm going to bring up here, see if we can see this up here. So the, um, so the red line essentially is, uh, is uh, right at the base of the hill there is where the assassination took place. And then Ehud goes back up into Ephraim. And then, let, and then he blows the horn, and then they come back down, and, and down to that you know, blue squiggly line is the Jordan River. And so you have there, and so it goes to the fords where you would cross, the point of the, where you would cross, and they take control of that to cut off the escape of any Moabites. And, that's, and there the, the slaughter ensues. Um, now him blowing a horn seemed to be a predetermined signal to attack the Moabites uh, and, uh, and their cohorts. Uh, their king is dead. Uh, the Moabites are now shocked by what comes uh, next as they try to retreat to their homeland to perhaps regroup and come back. But then they go and they find that the, uh, the way is blocked and they die. Not one of those able-bodied, strong, fighting men escape. But as I mentioned, what should catch our eye here are the two references to idols in this passage. It was in noting that it, it was the worship of idols that brought Israel into this mess in the first place. But the idols of the gods of Moab, the chief of which were Chemosh, uh, are, are uh, we notice, are helpless. They stand helplessly by as their servants are slaughtered. They cannot stop the victory of God. We are reminded here in this passage that idols, whether they're ancient idols or modern idols, they cannot save us. They cannot deliver us. Our modern comforts, material obsessions cannot deliver us from the oppression of sin and the tyranny of death or the sorrows of this life. Our money, our reputation, our possessions, our health uh, are, are merely, if we worship them, if we bow down to them, we treat them as greater or on equal footing as God. Uh, they, they are then they become as statues of wood and stone when it comes to meeting the needs of our souls 
and saving us from everlasting sorrow. But Yahweh is the living God, the fountain of life from whom we drink by the hand of his Son, our Savior. The victory that we have over Satan, death, and the world in Christ's victory. And one day, we are told, he shall come and make that victory full with the final defeat of all evil in the world, especially Satan. And as the book of Revelation shows us, none shall stay his hand. And this leads us not only to that victory that we talked about, but also ultimately to the victorious rest that God gives. The final verse of this passage, verse 30 It tells us how the enemies of Israel were subdued and uh, under their hand and the land was given rest for 80 years. In biblical terms, that's roughly two generations. If you think about it, that would stretch back for us back to 1942, right? That covers a lot of time, a lot of lives, a lot of years. The previous rest, we will note, because remember before we noted that it was eight years of oppression, then in the second round it becomes 18 years of oppression. And now we have, uh, and the previ- but the previous rest that was won by Othniel was 40 years, and now the rest that is won is 80 years. And so we see this intensifying of wickedness, intensifying of the oppression, and then, and then, and which requires greater and greater deliverances by the judges, which achieves greater and greater victory and rest. And we can here view the gracious nature of God because the Israelites have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. God's discipline of them has increased as well. But we note his mercy increases too. There are many Christians who have made a certain mess of their lives. Christians who have sinned against their families, their church, and most certainly their God. But they, you know, but we they but whoever is in that position, we need to let them and let us remember that God has raised a deliverer who meets our needs in Jesus Christ. It's a deliverer who's unusual in all the ways that Isaiah says the that the deliverer will be unusual in chapter 53. That there's nothing physical, uh, physically special about him. Very ordinary and plain. Unusual in the manner in which he quietly gives himself up to be killed for his people. Though he was innocent and that we are unworthy of him. But he is the redeemer who makes intercession for transgressors. It is upon him that the Father is laid upon the iniquity of us all, and he, his chastisement brings us peace. What we have learned here is that through our Deliverer, God will bring peace and rest that far outlasts our suffering and sorrows in this life. And so here is the story of Ehud, a story of idolatry and discipline, a story of blood and guts, A story of violence and deliverance. A story of mercy, victory, and rest. Far from being a story that we should avoid, we actually find it a story for our times. One that warns us against idolatry and comforts us with the mercy of God 
which finds us wherever we are in a very, very messy world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a victorious deliverer. That, Father, your people don't always get better. We confess that even as the church, we don't always get better all the time. That we find ourselves many times sinning against your goodness, sinning against your patience, sinning against your kindness. And you correct us. You, you sometimes use pain. You sometimes use hardship. You sometimes simply strike our hearts and bring it before our eyes. You use the preaching of the word. You use our own personal meditations upon the word. You use a faithful Christian relative or friend. Your spirit convicts us, moves us to with grief to repentance. And Father, we pray that you would do that painful work in us. Should we ever turn away and forget you and worship idols? And Father, we pray, we praise you, Lord, for a deliverer who doesn't look exactly how we thought, who acts differently than we thought, who deliver us, delivers us in ways that we may not expect, but in the end delivers us by his kindness, his power, and he brings us peace and rest. And so, Father, we pray that we would rejoice not only in the story of Ehud and what, he, and what you did through him for your people, but in the story of Jesus Christ, the strange deliverer who delivers your people and brings them rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.